The only way to do any business is to believe in yourself and to do it, and to do it right. That's the only way I can imagine myself doing any business, but this one in particular. Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On this episode, recorded in January of 2019, we spoke with David Segal of David Segal Violins. Here's what Betsy Boger-Pallaby, founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about this business. The first time I was walking in the 60s, it was a rainy day on the Upper West Side, and I miss David Segal's violins because he's hidden inside an apartment building. But then I was walking on a sunny day with some other people, and one of the women noticed for me and said, what's that? And I said, I don't know, and I saw a sign that said, violins and I tried to get into the building. There was no doorman. So I just stood there for a little while until somebody came in or went out. I don't remember which, but I got in and I knocked on the door and there was David and he showed us all around and shared his passion with us. And he had violins made in the 1700s and this tiny little violin that he made that he was going to someday give to his little grandson. And I was just so taken by his story and by him and by his craft. My name is David, well, should I say Seagull or Seagull? <laughs> How do you pronounce it? <laughs> you know, when you ask my little grandson, who is four years old, Tell me, what's your name? So he says, Rami Spencer Segal. And Yaniv, my son, who is a conductor, he goes by also Yaniv Segal. And the right way to pronounce my name is Segal, but coming to America, where names are being distorted a little bit, so I became a seagull. So my name is David Siegel. And my business is David Siegel Violins LTD. And when did you first open your violin shop? I think it was in 1974, 75. I came to America in 1973. I worked for two years. I was employed by a big violin company called Wurlitzer. And once they closed down their shops, I decided that I will not be employed by anybody, but I'll be my own boss. Where did you move to the United States from? From Italy. I lived in, uh, in Italy for four years prior to coming to America. I went there to school, to a violin making school. And your father was a violin maker? My father was a lot of things. Among others, he was a violin maker. Yeah, he was an artist. I would, I would say my father was a Renaissance man. He was a painter. He was a sculptor, and he was a violin maker. He started his, his uh, musical instrument making by creating mandolins and guitars. In the 50s, 60s, in Israel, there was a lot of uh, demand for uh, mandolins because there were many orchestras consisted of mandolins. Mandolin, mandola, mandocello, mandobas. At that early stage of the state of Israel, it was difficult to... Uh, import instruments, so he started making them. What made you choose to move to the United States and to New York? Well, originally I intended to come here just for two years. I wanted to come here to improve my skills. The greatest violin maker at that time uh, was uh, working at Wurlitzer's and he 
suggested I should come to work at their shops. I wanted to stay here for two years and go back to my old country. But 40, how many years? 45 years almost. you decide to open your own store once you left Wurlitzer? I did not feel like being employed by somebody having a boss on top of me. Did you hire others to help you in the store? No, at that time, you know, you start a shop, you start a business, you don't know, you don't know much about America even. Needless to say, money was not really, it was not a problem because there was no money. So um, I started working in through my apartment. I lived at that time on 54th Street, West 54th Street. And I had a small apartment of one bedroom and living room and a very small kitchen, the size of that table probably. And uh, so I dedicated my living room to be a workshop. And so I didn't have to pay double rent. And minded the rent at that time. Today it sounds uh, ridiculously low. Rent was for one bedroom apartment was $270 a month. You don't get today, I think, the uh, uh, size of a chair for that amount uh, of money. <laughs> but I could not afford to, to have both apartment and a workshop. So I did it that way. And I think it took me about two years, maybe, before I, I separated my personal life from my apartment to a professional life, having renting a shop on West uh, 62nd Street. And how did you afford to rent your first space? Was it through selling the violins that you were making in your apartment? I made violins and I repaired them as well. So I don't recall exactly how, but I'm, I'm sure I lived very frugally, making sure that I have enough to start something new. Who were your clients at that time and who are your clients today? Musicians. <laughs> that makes sense. Of course, I did not know many people at that time, but slowly, slowly, um, word of mouth. I never advertised. I never went through advertisement in newspaper, professional papers. I just, one person at a time, I attended. At that time, I went to, I was single at that time, so I went to many concerts, mostly uh, the concert that I could afford, which was a Juilliard, Manis, Manhattan School. Sometimes, sometimes I would get also be able to afford to buy a ticket to to um, go to a concert in, in at Carnegie. Slowly, I got, I got to know people, so I um, word of mouth. When did you become interested in music? Music can be separate from instrument repairs or instrument making, but it sounds like you had an, a separate interest. I, in I think that it was, I, born with, I was born with that. As a child, I didn't listen to either rock music or popular music or folk music. I would only listen to classical music. We, always a fight between me and my sister. She wanted to listen to some uh, lighter music, we, we call it lighter music, I guess. Uh, I did not, I was not trained as a musician. I, I studied, I played as a child, I, I played the classical mandolin, I played the guitar, 
classical guitar. Before going to Italy, I was even teaching kids uh, in some uh, music schools in near Tel Aviv. In order to be close to music, I, I thought maybe I should be, follow my father's step, footsteps and make instruments and be close to music via, via making them. I would love to hear if you felt any particular connection to the community in New York. Oh, you bet. I live here for most of my adult life. I live in New York. I, it's a, it's a, my city. It's my place. Um, as far as um, the music life in New York is extremely rich and extremely powerful, I'm part of it. I feel part of it. How have you seen New York change over the time that you've been here? <laughs> a great deal. I've seen building uh, coming up like uh, mushrooms, without uh, hesitation, with uh, of of to build or not to build. No, it is being built. It's amazing, actually, to think how it changed yes. in the last uh, 40 years, 45 years. Even though I've been living here for so many years, there's still some sections in the city that I'm discovering. I believe in musical education. Uh, so I treat every, I myself treat every kid who wants to play a violin or any musical instrument, I, I believe in him. I, because of that, for instance, because of that kind of philosophy, I had a music camp which I, which I uh, created in New Hampshire and I carried it for about close to 20 years. For me, just to make sure that the kids will play. And my motto was, if you kid is willing to spend two weeks of your summer vacation and study violin, or viola or cello or whatever instrument, um, and work hard on that, that's wonderful, that's beautiful. Music is um, good for everybody. Now, um, if I see youngsters whom I can recognize that they will become a soloist, it's unimportant because soloist life is not so full of glamour as we think. To be a violinist on stage in the solo world is a very hard work and very difficult life. Traveling every week to another hotel, great part of the year to be away from home, caring for your instrument. You cannot go skiing because you might break your hand. You cannot play tennis because, so much because you might hurt your arm. It's not so... I mean, I, I've known a lot of violinists who non-stop going to physical therapists. I wish people to study music. I wish them to enjoy it. And if one of them comes out and becomes a solo, solo player, wonderful. And if he's willing to do it, great. But it's, I would not push for that. I've seen a lot of kids, very talented young kids. I've seen also kids who are not talented in studying music. I encourage them even more because they, are not, because they don't have the talent, but they have the wish or their parents even have the wish, but they have the, it gives them something that's 
that extra that they will eventually cherish. If someone is studying violin and doesn't become a violinist, most likely he will be going to Lincoln Center to listen to music. That's by itself is good. He will sit at home and watch um, a concert on the tele- on TV. Uh, that's good. Not necessarily everything has to be uh, highly professional, highly motivated, and pushed. Do you see just as many kids being interested in studying music now as ever? Yes. The music schools are full of kids. Yes. It's, it's a funny story, actually. One day I'm in the shop, and my son calls me. And of course, if my son calls me, that's a priority. And... Rami wants to talk to me. Saba, Saba in Hebrew means uh, grandpa. Saba, can you make me a violin? She said, sure, make you a violin. Would you like to play it? Yes. Okay, that was, he was about four years old. A few minutes later, he calls back, did you make a violin? And all of it on FaceTime. So, so I said, oh, I grabbed one violin and I said, sure, I made you, look, here it is. So he was very happy. An hour later, he called me. Would you make me a bow too? I don't know how to make bows, but it's a different profession, kind of. I said, I'll make you a bow. The same story repeated. An hour later, he calls, did you finish the bow? I grabbed the bow, I showed him a bow. He cannot tell the difference. That was around Christmas time. We met in New Hampshire, all of us, where we have a house, and uh, under the tree was a violin, quite a nice violin, I did not make it, no, to tell you the truth, don't tell Rabbi. And um, it was too good for him, kind of, to say to, to play, because little kids don't know how to treat such a delicate box. So I found him another instrument, which is really not much. And that's what he, he has both instruments now. One of them he still doesn't touch because it is not yet completely conscientious on how to take care of it. It's to teach a kid an instrument is not, is, is depending a lot on the parents. The parents have to devote a lot of time. It's not like go and read a book. No, it's like working with them. And it could be frustrating, it could be joyable and enjoyable moments, but Lots of frustration involved, and I know it from my own kid when I when we did it. it was the same story. What has helped to keep your business open for as long as it has continued for? Just my uh, being stubborn and wanting to do it. You know, only the only way to do any business is to believe in yourself and to do it, and to do it right. That's the only way I can imagine myself doing any business, but this one in particular. For you, what did it mean to do it right? Um, to treat the instruments the proper way, in other words, not to abuse an instrument, and to treat the musician, the customer, in the right way. It's almost, uh, you need almost um, and I never learned psychiatry, but it, you almost need to be a psychiatrist to deal with musicians. 
Do you have any good stories about working with musicians? I, uh, that would be when I write a book. <laughs> I will have published it. <laughs> but um, musicians have to uh, feel comfortable with my, what, whatever I do, whatever I give them, that that is the right thing. Some of them take it and some of them don't feel that way, so they go elsewhere, which is fine too. In the violin business, since it's an antique business also, and very subjective um, sound. You like that sound, and I like this sound, and and he likes different one. On you can hear on one instrument by and three people examines it uh, the instrument. You can have three or four opinions. So. Um, uh, it is um, that to do to do it and, and, and going back to the antique part, it's um, antique instrument. So a violin was made by a certain maker, and I was not there when it was made in seventeen hundred. Nobody was there. Now you have to. Knowledge that you acquire, seeing many instruments, touching them, learning them, studying them, comparing them to others. My, my uh, take on value of instruments is that um, antique instruments, its value by about 90 or 95 percent because of its name, and antiquity value, and 5% because of its sound. While a new instrument made by me or by other modern makers, 95% uh, of it because of their sound, and 5% because of their name. So, because there are many, many old instruments which they look terrific, they are very attractive, very um, desirable, but the sound is okay. Some of them, some of the old instruments, are, when they possess both uh, beauty, condition, and sound, then they are marvelous, they are absolutely great. But uh, this type of instruments uh, go into the tens of millions of dollars, while a violin made Today, it can look fantastic, beautiful, because we are equipped with better tools than people had in the 1700s. Um, so that can be done beautifully, and then sometimes it don't sound good. So, the same story. About a violin, it's a mystery. You make a violin, and you believe it will sound good, and it turns to be a box. And then you have to start trying to mitigate the problem and to try to improve the sound. Um, so it's possible sometimes. Have you made violins that you work hard on and then in the end you don't like how it sounds? Each of them sound different. Mm. So I learned how to accept the fact that not every violin would sound this exactly as I mm. wish it to sound. For instance, I have an instrument which I made in 1972, long time ago. And I made it in while I was still in Cremona, and I recently obtained it because the owner 
is deceased, the same owner who bought it for me um, in 1972. So the estate had sold it to me. I bought it for many, many more uh, times the original price. It's okay. And I tried it and I didn't like how it sounded. So I opened it and I did some tweeting and it sounds much better. Because what I knew then is different than what I know now, maybe. Uh, as far as from acoustical point of view, from sound point of view, from whatever. I'm not completely yet 100% sure that how I will leave it. I might open it again and do some more changes in the instrument. And maybe it, I will improve it to my liking. In 100 years, what do you think people will be saying about owning a David Seagal violin? I hope that they will be able to make beautiful music out of it. Mm. I hope that they will be able to uh, judge it by its sound, and if the sound will um, uh, retain its value, the sound's value will, will be retained, then forward? <laughs> My old age? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I will keep going as long as, long as I can. With your business? With my business, mm -hmm. with my... Uh, I'm a little bit differently than before because now I, I permit myself to uh, take time off if I want to. Um, I have great helpers in my shop. My assistant Diane is, uh, has been working with me for the last 35 years. Wow. And uh, she is absolutely great, and she knows the business in and out, and she knows also me, because we have been working together for so many years, so we know each other. It's enough to um, look at each other in the eyes to understand what was going, what's going on here. So um, between Diane and I, if if Dan if Dan stops working in my shop, I might close it. I don't know what I don't think that uh, neither one of us have that kind of intention. The business is good. I think that we are appreciated by people from New York, musicians here, and people from other places because we have clients all over the globe um, who come to see us. So it's nice to feel that you're appreciated and it's nice to know that you can go on. We have um, a team, we have good, a good team of people now um, between Diane and um, two other young fellows who come to who work with us. So we are, aside from employing people, which is nice to know that we can uh, help other people to make a, their living with in a beautiful environment of uh, music. It's um, give me a certain kind of satisfaction. It's not just um, office work that you come, go, and and don't care about. Once you leave the once the five thirty comes and you go out. Also, looking forward, I wonder if you have any wisdom that you would like to pass down to someone who wants to work for themselves and start their own business? 
If somebody has a vision of what he wants to do, he can do it. It's um, sometimes it's um, the the road has uh, up and downs. Certainly, I had it. But if you are honest with yourself and you are honest with the with the vision that you have in front of you, then you can. I believe that anything can be done. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Ellie Cody, and this has been Manhattan Sideways. If you'd like to learn more about this particular business or to discover and read about thousands of other fascinating small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, please visit our website, sideways.nyc, and of course, follow us on Instagram and Facebook, at NYSideways.